rid of them. That's all I have for you. So opening your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 21. And we're continuing our series through the life of Elijah. And we've looked at a few things through Elijah. We're about halfway through now. We've seen Elijah in the drought. We've seen Elijah and the uh, Gentile widow. We've seen Elijah and the prophets of Baal. We also saw Elijah run afterward when Jezebel threatened to kill him anyway. And the thing that we skipped because Elijah was not in the story was in 1 Kings chapter 20, you have Syria come and they make war with Israel. And then God sends a prophet to Ahab, the same wicked king that we've been following. And the prophet says, hey, Ahab, um, God's going to show off a little bit and you're going to win. And so then Israel proceeds to absolutely dunk on the Syrian army, despite the fact that the Syrian army outnumbered them more than 10 to 1. And after that, That's where we are now, where afterward uh, Ahab lets the king of Syria go. And then God says, yeah, bro, you shouldn't have done that because you've done that. I'm going to punish you. And so Ahab goes home and he goes home angry. And now in chapter 21, we're going to see what Ahab does once he's home after a war. And essentially, we're going to see into the home life of Ahab and Jezebel, like a sitcom, but a little bit different. So start reading in verse uh, one. It says, Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I give you the inheritance of my father's. And something that's actually significant there, um, first of all, property in Israel is very important. And so God specifically portions off the pieces of property that's given to each individual person. And so to just shyst your property off to someone else, unless you're in a really dire situation where you just need the money to survive, the property is supposed to stay with the person that owns it because God gave it to them. And so Naboth is not wanting to give God's inheritance to Naboth's family to Ahab. And so Ahab went to his house in verse four, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and he turned away his face and would eat no food. So here's the important thing from getting that. Uh, Ahab is a child, that is all. Like literally, dude, he's throwing a tantrum because this guy's not giving him a vineyard and he's not eating, He's, he's throwing a tantrum and it's ridiculous. But here's where the fun starts. Because in verse 5, And then Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? So this is significant. We've seen Jezebel a few times, but we've never really seen direct interactions with Jezebel. Some things that we know about her from the stories that we have read is that she had all of the prophets of Baal eat at her table. We know that after Elijah killed all the prophets of Baal, then Jezebel said, hey, um, may the Lord do more to me and more so if you're not made like one of the prophets of Baal by this time tomorrow. So she tries to kill Elijah. And then we also know all the way back from 1 Kings chapter 16 that one of Ahab's great sins was marrying Jezebel in the first place because she's a Sidonian, and she's the daughter of the king of Sidon, the guy named Ethbal. And there's a command that God gave Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, you are to enter, to possess, and drives out the many nations before you. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you. 
And so the issue is, the real problem with Jezebel, and we've talked in the past that it's not like God has a massive issue with different ethnicities. You know, you have examples like um, Uriah the Hittite. You have examples like Ruth. People that are respected members of the Israelite community despite being foreigners. But we talked in our Nehemiah series that the point was, if you want to join Israel, you have to leave your idols behind. And so the issue is not per se that Ahab married a foreigner. The issue is that Ahab married an idol worshiper. Ahab married a non-Yahweh follower in Jezebel. And the issue with that is that the person that you marry is going to be someone who massively impacts you. And essentially Ahab is being put right in front of you as an example of what happens when you're not careful about that decision. It's like, who are you going to choose that is going to be the primary influence in your life? Be very careful. Ahab wasn't. And even marrying Jezebel was a massive sin in its own right, but what was worse was what she led him to do and what he allowed himself to be led to do. Like the fault is always laid right on Ahab's uh, lap. But Jezebel, we know some things about her, but we're about to see a bit more. And it says, but Jezebel, his wife came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or, uh, or if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, knowing what we know about uh, Jezebel, that should be a very scary sentence. Because <laughs> immediately the question's flittering through your mind, what is Jezebel about to do? <laughs> to get Naboth's vineyard for her husband. But also, I'm going to come back to that. But we're like, what is Jezebel about to do? Like, you should be kind of nervous at this point. And so we're going to see in verse 8. Well, okay, what's her plan? So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and to the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And they set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king and then take him out and stone him to death. So that plan is horrifying. Like there's a lot of things wrong with that plan. Here's the first one. Think about how casually Jezebel is just murdering someone. That's, that's the first one. Someone is dying. Here's the second one. He's, she's using a religious feast as the pretense to do it. She's saying, hey, set up a time, set it aside to worship God, set Naboth at the head of the people, and also accuse him of cursing God, and then kill him. So she's doing a religious festival as the pretense, and here's the bonus points, they're killing Naboth for, quote, cursing God, even though he didn't. So all of this is being guised as like, we care so much about God that when someone curses God, we stone them even though it's a false accusation in a pretense festival to murder someone for a vineyard. So God is being used as the vehicle for Jezebel's murder. Like not only is this murder, not only is this casual murder, but this is a mockery of God in the process. Like just about everything that could be wrong with Jezebel's plan is wrong with her plan. She's basically flaunting mockery in God's face, murdering an innocent man, and she's doing it casually. <laughs> Like, she didn't even have to really spend that much time thinking of this plan. She sees Ahab and she's like, dude, get over it. I can take care of that for you. I will get you that vineyard and then goes into action. And it makes me think, how many other things like this was Jezebel doing? Probably a lot. This feels like a typical Thursday. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, it feels like a typical Thursday. This is like normal weekday vibes. And then here's the thing. In verse 11, and then the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast, and they set Naboth at the head of the people. Now, here's something significant. Um, in verse 12, there's something in the Hebrew that you're going to miss in the English. In Hebrew, there's two different ways that they'll say something happened in the past. They have two different past tense verb tenses, essentially. And one of them that's typically used in this kind of a narrative is sequential. It's essentially like saying, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. But there's a second way that you can refer to past tense events that essentially breaks it out of the sequence and just makes it its own past tense event. In verse 12, it switches verb tenses and it's jaunting. Like when I was translating it, I was thinking to myself, okay, am I, am, am I just crazy? Am I not understanding what's happening? Am I doing something wrong? That's weird. Like that never happens. That it just swaps verb tense when telling a story. But here's the thing that's significant. Have you guys ever seen Avengers Endgame? Yeah. So in Avengers Endgame, you've got the entire team of the Avengers trying really hard to keep Thanos from getting each stone. And every time there's a stone that Thanos needs to get, it seems like the heroes are going to be able to mount some sort of defense against it. And then all of a sudden, against all odds, Thanos gets the stone. He gets the reality stone after they thought that they had killed him. And then he gets the soul stone, despite the fact that he has to kill his daughter to do it. And then finally, at the very end, he gets Vision Stone, right? And then you have Thor coming in with Stormbreaker, and he lands the axe right in Thanos' chest. And you're thinking, okay, we've got hope. Something can be done. Thanos is about to die. And then you got the famous line, you should have gone for the head. And he snaps his fingers. And then after it comes back from his little vision with creepy daughter thing, all of the background music is gone. And you're just watching Captain America and Thor as despair rests on their face and then you slowly watch person after person after person turn to dust. And there's just that prolonged moment of somber despair where it's like, oh no, there is no hope left. This is happening. That's exactly the progression that you're supposed to have in chapter 21. Jezebel says, I'm going to get you that vineyard. And you're thinking, goodness gracious, what is she going to do? And then she writes letters in Ahab's name and seals them. And those letters say, hey, you elders, you nobles, you people who are supposed to be faithful governors, you people who know Naboth. Yeah, I want you to falsely accuse him under the pretense of a religious festival and murder him. And you're thinking, goodness gracious, there is no way. There's no way that the nobles and the leaders would actually do that. We've still got hope. We've still got a chance that Naboth doesn't get murdered for no reason. We've still got hope. And then in verse 12, it changes the verb tense. And instead of that fast pace, and then, and then, and then, it says, and then they did exactly as she had said. They proclaimed a fast. They set Naboth at the head of the people. And it's like that somber, cut the music, slow down, this is happening. They're actually doing this. There is no hope. They're actually about to just murder an innocent man and use God as the vehicle to do it. And in verse 13, And then the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him, and the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. And so they took him outside the city, and they stoned him to death with stones. And then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. And one thing that kind of sticks out to me in verse 14 especially, it says, Naboth has been stoned. 
he is dead. Do you notice anything missing from that sentence that you might have expected to be there? Um, it might have been, hey, but they also took his vineyard. So there's, you're close. There's something else. Who did those actions? The nobles, the elders, and the people. Naboth's leaders, Naboth's friends, Naboth's neighbors. But when they wrote the letter to Jezebel, they said, hey, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. They did not say, we stoned Naboth, he's dead. There's like that subtle disconnect from the action that has been performed and the fact that, oh yeah, I did that. And you actually see a similar thing in verse 15 when it continues, because as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And even the way that she says that, she could have been like, oh yeah, he's dead. Instead, she says, dude, 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 Naboth's life is no more because he's dead. Like, what a way to say that. Here's the next thing that's missing. Does she say, I got him killed? No. She says, oh no, he, he's just dead. His life's over. And she disconnects her own agency from it, just like the nobles and the elders did. So here's the thing that's significant about that. Which, even this whole situation with Jezebel and Ahab, like, it would be adorable if they were doing anything else. Like, if Ahab was like, maybe someone insulted him and called him fat, and he was just in bed crying, and then Jezebel comes in, and she's like, babe, what's the problem? And then Ahab's like, hun, do you think I'm ugly? And she's like, bro, no, that's ridiculous. Get up, let's... Let's go, like, go on a walk to a park and get some ice cream. Cheer up. We're, you're good. I'm here with you, man. And then she's, like, feeling better, and they're going out. But instead, it's kind of like, you know, Jezebel shows up, and she's like, Ahab, Ahab. And she grabs his arm, and she's like, I've got your present. And she brings him out, and she's like, Naboth's dead. You can have the vineyard. And if, like, if it weren't for what she had done and what he was doing, this would be adorable. It'd be like a little sitcom kind of a deal. But despite the tone being so light, the actual thing that's being done is so dark. Here's the second thing. Are, are Ahab and Jezebel the only wicked people in Israel? No. At any step in this process, that entire thing could have been stopped. If the nobles and the elders, the people who were responsible to be justly ruling their tribe, they could have received the letter from Ahab, received the letter from Jezebel, and said, goodness gracious, no way are we going to do that. They could have said no. The two men that they went to go hey, say, hey, hey, falsely accuse Naboth for us. They had to be able to find two people in the tribe and in the area that were willing to do that. What would have happened if just every single person had said, yeah, I've, under no circumstances am I doing that? And these are people who know Naboth, by the way. When Naboth was falsely accused, you could have had anyone stand up and say, uh, yeah, definitely not. I know the character of those two people, and I know the character of Naboth. No way he did that. I'm not, I'm not taking part of this. At any level of the hierarchy, you could have had someone stop and do the right thing. And at no point does it happen. And so we look at Ahab, we look at Jezebel, and it's easy sometimes to look at Israel and say, man, Israel's getting judged and Israel's suffering for all their unrighteous kings. But what about just the normal average man, the average Joe that was being ruled over that didn't really have say in those circumstances? But the people of Israel were complacent in the rule of Ahab and Jezebel. The people of Israel were complacent in all of the unrighteousness that those two people were doing. So they bear responsibility. 
And there's a few places where this gets visited later. But one is in Daniel chapter 9. When Daniel is, uh, he reads in Jeremiah that the 70 years of exile for Israel before going back to the promised land are fulfilled, he prays to God. And in his prayer, he says in verses 8 through 10, To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness because we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants and the prophets. In Daniel chapter 9, in Nehemiah chapter 1, in uh, Jeremiah 32 and 33, just off the top of my head. Well, not off the top of my head. I looked them up last night. But those are the two that I found. Those are the three that I found. In all of those sections, they look back on the behavior of Israel over the course of First and Second Kings, and they don't say, man, those wicked kings that jacked over the rest of us. They say, all of us who deserve this. Israel is wicked. Israel deserves punishment. 100%. It's not just Ahab and Jezebel. It's everyone all the way down the line. That's a rough circumstance. And that's crazy. That's like the post-snap world where it's like, wow, that actually happened. It's like, yeah, that actually happened. A dude for the terrible crime of not wanting to give God's possession to someone else was murdered by his friends, by his leaders, by his elders at the casual request of Jezebel. Rough. So what's going to happen about this? What is going to be God's response to this egregious evil? Well, next up, God's condemnation. We got... Elijah. You know, we're only t- covering the stories that got Elijah in them. So this is where Elijah comes in. And in verse 17, and then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria, which at this point, Elijah is still kind of like on the run, quote unquote, after Jezebel threatened to kill him from killing the prophets of Baal. So Elijah has not been active since killing the prophets of Baal. And then we had that whole thing in 19 of like nap and a snack. I know you're sad. Here's some bread. Go to the mountain and see some stuff. Like that whole thing. In verse 17, the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick up your own blood. So the issue is, Jezebel thinks that she's being pretty sly. She thinks that she's just going to get this vineyard, have no real consequences, and then God sends his prophet and he says, yeah, that thing that you thought you had the right to do, that thing that you thought you could get away with because you're the king and the queen, that thing that you've probably done plenty of things like it in the past and gotten away with all of those, so you thought I wasn't watching, that was the last time. You're done. Judgment is coming your way. You think that no one's going to hold you to account, but I'm going to hold you to account. And so Ahab said to Elijah in verse 20, Have you found me, O my enemy? Which this is something that we've talked about with Ahab before, but Ahab is consistently blaming Elijah for all of the judgments that God brings on Israel through Elijah. Even when the drought came, Ahab blamed Elijah. Not his own wickedness, not his own wrongs. He blames Elijah, God's messenger. There's no personal accountability. The elders and the nobles aren't taking accountability. Jezebel's not taking accountability. Ahab's not taking accountability. It's all Elijah's fault. Of course. Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Which, let's just take that description. 
We're actually going to talk about it more later. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Bashah, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel sin. Let's talk about that. This is one of the things. I don't know how many of you off the top of your net, uh, off the top of your net, off the top of your head, know who Jeroboam and Bashar are. Anyone randomly happen to know who those two people are? So when I read this, I knew who Jeroboam was. I did not know who Bashar was because I'm a bad Christian. And I'm going to let you know who Jeroboam and Bashar are. So you guys know the story of Solomon. Solomon is a wicked king at the end of his life. And then God says, I'm not going to take it out of your hand. I'm going to take the kingdom out of your son's hand. And so Rehoboam is an idiot. And after Rehoboam does his dumb things, the guy who takes over the northern tribes of Israel is the guy named Jeroboam. So Jeroboam takes over the northern tribes of Israel. He starts instituting idol worship because like, if everyone in your country has to go to that country over there to worship in the temple, it's probably not good politics. So he starts setting up altars and whatnot in Israel so that they don't have to go to Judah to worship at the temple. And he instates idol worship. And so Jeroboam is wicked. And then at the end of Jeroboam's reign, God sends him a message. And in 1 Kings 14, he says, because of you, you have done all of this evil, Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. So Jeroboam has that proclaimed against him. And then in the reign of Jeroboam's son, Bashah, the son of Ahijah, kills Jeroboam's son, slaughters every man in Jeroboam's household, and takes the throne for himself. And then Bashah himself is not much better. In fact, he's actively worse than Jeroboam. And so in 1 Kings 16, 2 through 4, um, God speaks to Bashah. And he says, because you've done all of the sin, I will sweep away Bashah and his house. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. Anyone belonging to Bashah who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the field, the birds of the heaven shall eat. And then in Bashah's son's reign, a guy named Zimri kills Bashah's son, and then Omri, the father of Ahab, the king we have now, took power from Zimri. And all of the men in Bashah's household were slaughtered, just like Jeroboam. And now we're coming to Ahab, and he says in verse 22, I'll make the house of Ahab like that of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, and like Bashah, son of Ahijah. And in verse 23, uh, sorry, 24, anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. And then in 2 Kings chapter 9, that happens. In 2 Kings chapter 9, you have Jehu, and Jehu comes in, he kills Ahab's son, and then he goes to the city, and he kills Jezebel. And then he sends letters and he slaughters every male in Ahab's household, all of them. And then he also gathers up all of the prophets of Baal that are in Israel. He says, you know, Ahab worshipped Baal a little bit, but Jehu's going to worship Baal a lot. And so he gets all of the prophets of Baal into the same building. And then he tells his soldiers, yeah, go through there, kill all of them. If a single one of them lives, your life will be forfeit. And so he slaughters all of those prophets of Baal. He slaughters all of the children of Ahab. And then God comes to Jehu and he says, good job. Because you've done that, I'm going to give you four generations on the throne of Israel. We talked about this a little bit when we talked about Elijah and the drought. That's kind of brutal. 
We talked about in the drought how sometimes we have a tendency to want to focus on the happy attributes of God and not think about God's justice. But think about this. God is the same God that went to Sodom and Gomorrah and burned them all alive. God is the same God who went to Jeroboam and said, because you were wicked, I'm going to slaughter you and all of your sons. That's the same God that then went to Bashah and said, I'm going to slaughter you and all of your sons because you didn't learn from what I did to Jeroboam. And then that's the same God that went to Ahab and said, yeah, you didn't learn from what I did to Jeroboam and to Bashah, the dude that your dad took power from. Uh, you didn't learn from what I did from them and you did even worse than they did. I'm going to slaughter you. I'm going to slaughter all of your sons. That's, uh, that's kind of rough. God is extraordinarily wrathful. God judges sin brutally. And that's not something that's like an Old Testament characteristic that disappears in the New Testament. In Matthew 10, when Jesus is sending his disciples out into Israel to evangelize the nation, he says this in verse 28, And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Like, let's just think about that for a second. Sometimes we've heard that a lot, and so we don't really think about what, it, what it's being said there. Um, Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, hippie Jesus with long brown hair, sitting on the step, talking to everyone with niceness and rainbows. Meek and mild Jesus. He looks at his disciples, and he doesn't say, don't fear those who can only kill the body because God is your defender. Focus instead on the love of God and be motivated to serve him. No. He says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot fear the soul. Fear me, because I can put you in hell. That's a little bit incongruous with the view of God that we can tend to have. But here's the deal. It is important and it is crucial to understand God's wrath. It is important and it is crucial to understand God's justice. Like when you're reading Proverbs and it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, you're supposed to be reading that and thinking of these stories. Because God is not apologetic about his wrath. He's actually brags about it. Last week on Wednesday when we were going through Job and God was bragging about how he humbles the proud and treads the wicked underfoot, God brags about his wrath. It is not something that we need to apologize for. And I have been in circumstances where you say things like, yeah, God sends people to hell. And then someone immediately raises their hand and says, people don't, God doesn't send anyone to hell. People send themselves to hell. And it's mm -hmm. like, actually, no. <laughs> God does. God is not apologetic about that aspect of his character. But here's the other thing. In Matthew 10, right after Jesus says, rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. And so Jesus actually does then circle to God's watching over you and God cares about you. You don't need to fear them. Like he starts with, I'm a lot more scary than they are. You should be afraid of me. But then he moves into, but you actually have nothing to fear from me. I'm your helper. And so it's important to understand God's wrath, but also God is loving. God is compassionate. And we also still need to have a healthy fear. But I actually want to keep reading. And in verse 23, this is a part that I skipped over. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. So not only does God speak against Ahab, but also like God didn't feel the need to speak against the wives of Bashah or the wife of uh, Jeroboam. But Jezebel is just such a peach that God's like, actually, I need to address you specifically. The dogs are going to eat you. 
And then in 2 Kings chapter 9, when Jehu has the three eunuchs toss uh, Jezebel out of a window and then she falls and dies. Then after that, Jehu is like, here's the thing, man. She is the son of a king. We should bury her. And then he goes to where Jezebel fell and the dogs had already eaten her down to her skeleton. And then Jehu's like, on second thought, there's something going on there that I don't want to touch. And then he leaves her as dung on the face of the earth, as he says. And so Jezebel herself gets her own little special prophecy because judgment's coming for her too. And so here we are, and we've just seen this brutal situation of extraordinary sin. You've just seen God's pronouncement of judgment against Ahab and against Jezebel and also their entire household. So what's Ahab going to do? Well, in verse 25, And then there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So here's something that's significant. When it says it sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, that would be like if we said someone devoted themselves to something. Like you might look at an athlete and say, man, that athlete devoted himself to his sport more than anyone who came before him. That Olympic athlete, he was devoted. You might look at a musician and say, that musician right there, like Beethoven devoted himself to the piano in a way that no one else did. You might look at someone who's really, really skilled in their field and say, that is someone who has devoted himself to mastery in what he does. And then God looks at Ahab and God says, man, in a way that a top athlete devotes himself to his sport, in a way that a musician devotes himself to his instrument, in the way that an artist devotes themselves to every stroke of paint, man, Ahab devoted himself to sinning as much as possible. Ahab devoted himself to provoking me as much as possible. Ahab devoted himself to wickedness more than anyone who came before him. Like Ahab is being set apart as just worthless. And then in verse 27, and when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring disaster upon his house. Here's the thing that is wild to me. Like, I don't even know what to make of that section because in the very next chapter, Ahab dies because he says, I want to listen to the prophets of Baal. I don't want to listen to that prophet of Judah. And then when the prophet of Judah, or sorry, the prophet of God, gives him some bad news. Ahab throws him in prison, goes off to battle, and then gets killed. So Ahab dies doing a lot of the same things that he had spent his life doing. You know, ignoring God's prophets and being generally stupid. But God looks at Ahab's response, where he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he fasts. And if you guys remember from our our fasting lesson, fasting is specifically associated with prayer, mourning, and repentance. And so he's doing like repentance activities. And this isn't just like, you know, lip service. This isn't just for show because God looks at Ahab and says, you see how he just humbled himself before me? I'm actually going to be merciful to him. And so I don't know if this is like some sort of like sorry for the punishment kind of a deal or what the deal is and why this doesn't seem to last until the next chapter. Like maybe this is full on genuine repentance and Ahab just has a lot of bad habits. But God looks at Ahab and he's like, oh yeah, Okay. And here's the thing that that demonstrates. 
Ahab, this person who was completely committed to living his life as unrighteously as possible, God's willing to forgive him. And so just like in Matthew 10, where Jesus is saying, yeah, don't fear them, fear me, because I'm scarier than they are. Also, I'm really compassionate. This is kind of structured similarly, where it's like, yeah, God is extraordinarily wrathful. God is extraordinarily brutal, and he is entirely unapologetic about that. Also, God will forgive anyone. You have Ahab, this person who devoted himself to uh, unrighteousness more than anyone who came before him. And then God's like, you are so worthless. But do you see how he humbled himself, though? Do you see that repentance? I'll forgive him. And here's the thing that's significant. Sometimes it can be uncomfortable to talk about God's wrath. Here's why I make it a point to talk about God's wrath. Because you cannot understand God's love if you cannot understand God's wrath. In 1 Peter 2.24, it says about Jesus, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The thing that we don't realize is that forgiveness comes at a cost. When God forgives you, he had to actively pay the price you owed in order to forgive you. Like, like think about that. God's extraordinarily hot, wrath, God's incredible fury that is directed at sinful people. God the Father looks at all of us and he says, yeah, you are utterly sinful. I am enraged by the things that you are doing and I have hell stoked hot for you. But everything that I would dump on you, I'm actually going to dump on my son instead so that I can give you salvation. And then you have Jesus himself looking at people and saying, I am burning with fury. I am wrathful over the sin that you are committing. But because I love you, everything that should be dumped on you, I'm actually going to have it dumped on me instead. And then the Holy Spirit, he looks at us and he says, man, I am wrathful. I am angry about the extraordinarily sinful things that you are doing. And I have stoked hell hot for those sins. But I'm actually going to come down. I'm going to indwell you. And that sin that I hate so much, I'm going to see it through your eyes. I'm going to feel it through your hands. I'm going to hear it through your ears. I'm going to taste it in your mouth, and I'm going to smell it through your nose. And as Christians, every single time we sin, we make the Holy Spirit a passive participant in the thing he hates more than anything else. And the Father was willing to do that. The Son was willing to do that. And the Spirit was willing to do that. And if you don't understand what you owed for your sin, if you don't understand how much God hates sin, if you don't understand how much wrath had to be poured out on Jesus, you do not understand how much he loved you. So you need to understand God's wrath because God is saving you from something. If you think that everyone goes to heaven because God's just a nice guy and you don't understand that salvation means that you were saved from all of this wrath that you read about in 1 Kings 21, where God is slaughtering families wholesale, and you recognize that all of that fury is directed right at your back and that hell is stoked hot for you, But when you become a Christian, God saves you from that. If you don't understand what you're being saved from, there's not a lot of gratitude left over for God. Second thing, if you don't understand what you've been saved from, you don't understand what Jesus had to bear. Because 100% of the fury that you're being allowed to escape from, 100% of that had to get dumped right on Jesus. Otherwise, God's not just. And so we need to make sure that we have both of those and understand both of them. You don't just talk about God's wrath. No way. You also don't just talk about God's love. No way. You need both because you can't understand one without the other.
So what have we learned from this chapter? First things first, don't be like Ahab. Don't be like Jezebel. Uh, Ahab married Jezebel, and that led him to do some pretty jacked up things, but also marrying her in the first place was a sin. So when you're looking at someone, and for you guys dating, um, think about, do I want to be like that person? Because if I end up marrying that person, they're going to be the primary spiritual influence in my life. Do I want to look like them in 10 years? That should be something you're very careful about, and Ahab is an example of that. And then also, uh, don't be like the elders and the nobles that complied with the wicked commands of their kings and queens. An unrighteous government is oftentimes a sign of an unrighteous people. There's a saying, especially in a democracy, there's a saying, I can't remember who said it. it. I'm going to say it was Thomas Jefferson. Probably wasn't, but that sounds about right. So he said, um, (laughs) democracy is the groundbreaking idea that people deserve the government that they elect. So if you have a terrible government, that a lot of times is a reflection of the people they're ruling, partially because the people are letting them do the things they do. Here's the next thing. Make sure you have a healthy fear of God. God is terrifying. God is very scary. Hebrew says it is a horrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if we lose sight of that, um, that's supposed to encourage you to live wisely. That's supposed to encourage you to live righteously. Next up, make sure that you're repentant. If even Ahab, if even the most wicked person that God can think of is able to be forgiven when he repents, so can we. And so can anyone else. Last one. Understand what a gift salvation is. Salvation is God saving us from his own wrath. So you have been saved from something. You should understand what's been given to you. Secondly, you should understand the price at which that was given to you. Forgiveness is not free. And God is giving you this gift at enormous cost to himself. So with that, let's bow our heads and we'll pray it out. Lord, thank you for the story of Ahab and the vineyard. Lord, there are a lot of kings of Israel that we don't get to see much into their personal lives. But for some reason, you decided that this specific story was so essential that you've preserved it for about 2,800 years. I pray that you would help us to see the value of this story, that you would help us to see the value of understanding your wrath, that you would help us to see the value of understanding your mercy and your forgiveness, and that we would never minimize one in an attempt to make the other shine brighter because both of them are necessary. I pray that you would help us to live wisely, that you would help us to live fearfully, and that we would, you would help us to live reliant on your love and reliant on your forgiveness. Lord, help us to fear you well and help us to love you more. And I pray these things in the name of our King Jesus Christ. Amen.